Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Wasim Akhtar. My guest today is Dr. Barbara Oakley, a professor of engineering at Oakland University in Michigan. She is an inaugural innovation instructor at Coursera, an online course provider, where she co-taught one of the world's most popular massive open online course, Learning How to Learn. Her work focuses on the complex relationship between neuroscience and social behavior. She is uh, the author of many books, including Learning How to Learn, How to Succeed in School Without Spending All Your Time Studying, A Guide for Kids and Teens. And another book relevant to our discussion is Mind Shift. Barb, thank you very much for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Well, thank you so much for having me, Wasim. It's a pleasure being here on Bridging the Gaps. Barb, before we discuss the science of learning and what happens in our brain during the learning process, uh, please tell us about yourself. Uh, how did you get here where you are now? Oh, well, uh, my life journey is a little bit of an odd one. I uh, I started out hating math and science, so I didn't do very well at those subjects when I was going through school. And I enlisted in the Army, learned the Russian language, that's what I enlisted in order to train for, and then I ended up at age 26 not really having any very good job opportunities on the horizon. So I decided to see if I could change my brain and learn in math and science. And well, now today I'm a professor of engineering, unlikely as it might seem if you had known me as a child. And so I've grown very interested in how do we learn? How does the brain learn? And so that's that's one of my uh, my real interests as a professor of engineering. So I, I teach a class uh, called Learning How to Learn with Terrence Sanowski, um, who's the Francis Crick professor at the Salk Institute. And this class is actually one of the largest massive open online classes in the world. It's We've had almost two and a half million students, registered students to date. And so it's it's been a lot of fun on this new learning journey, uh, teaching people about learning. Let us uh, start with this question. Uh, how much do we know that uh, how does learning occur in the brain? Oh, well, it's a very complicated question to answer, but I'll try to simplify some of the aspects. So if you if you go down to like the most fundamental level, uh, learning involves, at least in part, our neurons, those fundamental building block cells of the brain. And really what you're doing when you learn something new is you're just creating new connections between neurons. So, uh, so that's part of why practice is valuable when you're learning something new because you help to build stronger connections as you practice more. And of course, there's a lot of uh, chemistry and uh, biochemistry involved in what's happening, but in essence, you're sort of broadening and thickening these uh, neural 
connections between the neurons. Uh, and so um, what another very important aspect of learning, though, involves the idea that you have two fundamental um, parts of memory. Um, one is your working memory. That's what you're holding temporarily in mind. It's almost it's it's almost like what you're conscious of of at the moment. The other type of memory is your long term memory, and that is scattered throughout your brain. It's it's sort of a uh, it, it's almost like when you remember something, you are are connecting the links that you have previously built. And what often happens when you're learning something is that working memory is really small. It cannot hold very much in mind at once. That's why you you might get a code from Google, for example, and you're repeating it to yourself just to remember it long enough to enter into your computer uh, or, or some brief thing that you're trying to hold in mind as opposed to long-term memory where you can remember, remember oodles of things. So the whole challenge, a lot of the challenge of learning involves getting whatever you're learned, learning past that, that funnel of that restricted access of the working memory, the very limited working memory, to try to get it into long-term memory where it's, where you can you can just grab it and bring it to mind much more easily. So when you're first learning something that's new and hard, like let's say backing up a car, it is really hard. Your, your working memory is sitting there going, now which mirror do I look in? Do I look on the one on the right or the one on the left or the one on the front or do I look behind me? And your your working memory is kind of overwhelmed. But once you've learned how to back up a car, all you have to do is kind of reach into working memory, or into long-term memory, and with your working memory, you reach into long-term memory, you connect in with the set of links that you've created there, and then backing up a car is so totally easy. In fact, all you need to do is like access that with with one arm of what I like to call your attentional octopus and the other arms of your attentional octopus, your working memory, are free. So you can kind of think about other things like what's the song that's playing on the radio or did you fasten your seatbelt? Oftentimes when we're learning something new, well, sometimes students will they'll not realize that they need to work with these ideas and store them in long-term memory so they can access them more easily. And so then what can happen is they sit down to a test, they haven't studied well, and they go, oh, it's test anxiety. That's what's hit me. And it actually isn't test anxiety at all. It's the fact that they haven't practiced and worked with and learned the material and stored that information in long-term memory. And so, as a consequence, their working memory is just going crazy, um, trying to solve problems that it's not really prepared to solve. Um, And that's what some people think is uh, test anxiety when it's actually just kind of poor study habits. 
In your book, Mind Shift, you emphasize that uh, learners should use metaphors uh, when they are learning complex topics. How does using a metaphor help uh, learning complex topics? When you use a metaphor, well, let's, let me give an uh, just sort of an example to begin with. So let's say you're trying to learn how electrical current flows. And electrical current involves, by and large, the flow of electrons. So if you think about it, electrical current flow is, is kind of like water flow, where water molecules flow along. And actually, you understanding the idea of how water flows wasn't an easy thing for you to initially get. I mean, babies will sit there and they will spend hours playing with water and splashing and watching it. And they're fascinated by water because actually water is really an, it's an interesting phenomenon to watch. And once you have that idea in mind of how does water flow, how does it, how does that work? You can much more easily use the set of links, which is, is what is represented in your brain as the flow of water. You can use that set of links to much more easily build uh, uh, a foundation for that new idea, which is the flow of electrical uh, 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 electrons as they're flowing along. So it's it's just super. It's so much easier to use something you know as a building block or a fundamental bridge um, to to understand something new. Even if at first glance, it might seem quite different. And one thing I found when I was working on the Book of Mind for Numbers is I reached out to thousands and thousands of professors who were rated as top teachers in their discipline. And one thing I found that surprised me was frequently one of their top tips to being a great teacher was to use metaphors, that that really helped them to convey ideas really quickly. But they often said things to me like, but don't tell anybody I do this. Don't tell the other professors. Because they were so used to the other professors kind of getting on their case because the other professors would say, oh, you're just dumbing things down. And those other professors didn't understand something called neural reuse theory, where if 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 you just use that metaphor as a you know it's a it's a a set of connections in your brain that you've already created, and you use that as sort of the building block for the new idea. It works in a, a fantastic way to help onboard people much more quickly. It's not dumbing things down. It's onboarding the students much more rapidly onto difficult ideas. You also emphasize uh, that uh, the brain has two fundamental modes of uh, thinking uh, by which it operates. And you suggest that if we effectively use these two modes of thinking we can improve our learning. Uh, talk us through these concepts. 
that's very true. And I think you people have an intuitive feeling for the idea that sometimes when they're really stuck on something, they can't figure out that it can be very useful for them to step away and take a break from it. But they don't really know why that's the case. And insights from neuroscience are beginning to help us understand why that's the case. And it relates, as you had mentioned, to these fundamental um, modes of how the brain thinks. Sort of like the first mode is when you're focusing on something that's called activating the task positive networks. So you might be activating networks related to math if you're working on a math problem, activating networks involving writing if you're writing something, another one involving speech if you're saying something aloud. So those are, but those are all you're focusing on what you want to say or do or write or solve. But the other mode is, this is often called by psychologists the task negative network or the uh, neuroscientists might call it the default mode network. And it is actually a set of sort of relaxed neural resting states that arise or connect together when you're not focusing on anything in particular. And so it might be sort of the, the thing when you're um, you know, sitting in a car driving along or riding a bus or going for a walk or falling asleep at night, or my favorite is taking a shower. And that's, so you're not thinking about anything in particular, and that's often when ideas come to you. So learning as it happens often involves going back and forth between the focused mode and the diffuse mode. And you can't be in both modes at the same time unless you're taking certain forms of mushrooms, and I'm not advocating that. Uh, uh, but uh, but what will often happen is you focus, 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 and you can't figure something out, and you get really frustrated. You stop working on it. You walk away, maybe work on something else, get your mind off it. And then when you return later on, suddenly it makes sense. And what has happened is that that diffuse mode has had some opportunity to kind of work in the background on what you've been thinking of. And or, or trying to solve or, or figure out, and it, it it can do a marvelous job. You're simply not aware that it is doing its job. So we often think that learning only involves that focus mode, when it really doesn't. It can often also involve that diffuse mode, sort of in the background, thinking, consolidating the information you're learn, learning and making sense of it. Another important point uh, that you um, highlight in your publications is managing our learning process in terms of time. Uh, we should put aside a specified duration of time to learn a new concept. And after that, uh, uh, we should take a break and perhaps uh, let the brain keep working on on, on, on this uh, in the background and let the brain take over the learning process, perhaps uh, unconsciously. 
Yes, and take a little break, and it's okay. Sometimes people will they'll work and work and work and work all the time, and they feel really guilty if they take a break because they don't understand that the break can be valuable. And so uh, taking that little diffuse mode break actually gives you some real good perspective, helps you understand better what you're working on. Even if what you're working on doesn't relate to something you're learning, perhaps it relates to a report you're writing for work or some other kind of project that you're working on. Isn't it... uh, I think most people have the experience of they took a, a break and then they realize, oh, they should have been approaching it this way or another way. And and actually, there's a much more efficient way or a better way to do whatever they've been trying to be uh, to do. So um, I think understanding that you have the, these two different um, if you're mathematically inclined, uh, you, you'd follow the, the metaphor to say they're, they're orthogonal to one another. Um, when one is on, the other is off. Uh, these understanding that we have these two quite different modes can give you a better appreciation, I think, for the idea that it's okay to step back and relax but also helps you to appreciate that when you do focus, you want to try and focus as intently as you can. So um, you know, try to minimize uh, things like, oh, you're answering an email and then you're popping back to work on the project and then you're answering another email. Now, it's, it's, it can be a little better sometimes to just keep your focus for a while. One of the best techniques, of course, is to use the Pomodoro technique uh, that was invented by Francesco Cirillo in the 1980s. And to do this, all you do is remove all distractions. So that means turn your cell phone so there's no ringy dingies to interrupt you, nothing popping up in your computer. And then set any timer for 25 minutes. So I have a timer that's on my computer and I just set it. I focus as intently as I can for 25 minutes, realizing I have kind of a monkey mind and just bringing it back whenever it's distracted. And then um, when I'm done, I give myself a five to 10 minute reward and I listen to my favorite song or or I can uh, get up and uh, dance to my favorite song or have a cup of tea or just chat on uh, online, whatever I feel like doing, but giving my mind a little mental break, that um, that technique is a really powerful one, the Pomodoro, to help you build your focus because in the at the end of your session, you're always rewarding yourself and that helps you to actually enjoy the attentional process even more and allows you to pay attention more easily or focus more easily. So it's a really, really good technique. Another important aspect of effective management of learning process is that you should set aside a duration of time as a target that you will spend on learning a topic and don't set a target in terms of what you intend to learn. Don't plan that you will continue uh, 
until you have learned the topic. Instead, plan to spend a specified duration of time and then take a break. Exactly correct. Now, sometimes if I am really in the flow of whatever I'm doing, I, I might go past 25 minutes. I may go 45 minutes. I may go two hours if I'm really in the flow of it. But whenever I am done, I, I, be sure, I make sure that I reward myself. And, uh, and that does program me. It, it's so funny. Now I'll set that Pomodoro timer. And as soon as I do, I can feel it kicking in and I'm like, okay, I'm going to start working on this. I don't think about what I'm actually doing because it's usually something I don't want to be doing. So I just think I have to do the Pomodoro, not, oh, I need to be working on this one research paper. And it, it's, it's really, it is it, so helpful uh, in, in building your ability to focus more effectively. You also introduce uh, another concept uh, that uh, we learn in chunks uh, and we create uh, chunks of learning in our brain. Uh, talk to us about this concept. This is, this is one of those concepts, I think, that is a little hard to grasp only because the terminology is so... Um, it, it can mean so many different things. There is actually a research paper on the many different meanings of the word chunk. And what, the, what I'm really trying to emphasize is some marvelous work that has been done on uh, related to this idea of creating mental representations or, um, or one might say a, a neural chunk or a set of neural links. And by this, I mean, let's say that you learn the simplest idea. So let's say that you are learning how to play a chord on the guitar. And so you, you learn it and you created a set of links in your brain. You've, you've connected certain neurons. So for our purposes, We'll just simplify and say, well, you learn this guitar chord and it actually connects five different neurons. It's probably a lot more than that, but let's just say five neurons. And when you learn another guitar chord, it's another five neurons, say. And then now you want to connect those two um, those two guitar chords and maybe with three others and it's part of a song. So you've just created this set, uh, a complex set of neural links that are all hooked together because you've learned the chords for this song. All learning is essentially like that. You're creating these sets of neural links and those are um, in your long-term memory and that's that really is what learning is all about. Barb, there is a concept uh, that different learners have different mindsets. For example, some learners have growth mindset and some have a fixed mindset. Carol Dweck has done very impressive research on these topics. What does your research inform us about uh, fixed views that sometimes people adopt? Uh, for example, uh, math is not for me, or 
I'm not good at math, so engineering is not for me. Or, I'm not a people person, so marketing is not for me. What does your research inform us uh, when people adopt these fixed views uh, about their capabilities and about uh, their uh, learning abilities? What I, my research often involves um, multimedia learning. So it's um, how do you create great online materials, for example. So but my work in outreach to the public often involves um, teaching about how the brain learns so that people can learn more effectively. So this is based on a long tradition that grows from um, Nobel Prize winning Nobel Prize winner uh, Santiago Ramoni Cajal did some of the original and great work on how the brain changes or how neurons can change. And as he often taught, you, you can rewire your brain. You can change who you are by what you learn. And, and he had solid evidence for that because of his own research. And that was done around 1910, 1920, you know, so it was uh, over 100 years ago. And, and what's interesting, interesting to me about Ramoni Cajal is he was a terrible student when he was growing up. He, he had a, a poor memory, a, a really awful working memory, and, and he, he got kicked out of elementary school after elementary school because he was just a troublemaker and he couldn't learn very well. And here he grows up to get the Nobel Prize for his pioneering work in neuroscience, and he's now known as the father of modern neuroscience. So uh, to my mind, it's important in these ideas of of mindset and you can change uh, your brain to to refer back to these um, brilliant originators of these ideas. Uh, and, And it's... It's absolutely true. We can change our brain. So, but the thing is, from my perspective, just thinking the thought, yeah, I can change my brain uh, and I can change some neurons. That's really not enough. Um, you, it, it is really helpful, I think, to learn of others' stories who have done some significant changes in their brain. So they're not just listening to a famous professor saying, yep, it's possible to change your brain. And and you're kind of thinking, yeah, well, sure, it's easy for them to say. They're they're super smart. Uh, um, I I think, and also to know much more about how to change, you know, how these changes can arise. For example, uh, you may not be able to figure something out right away. Well, a lot of students walk away from, uh, looking at a textbook on math or something and thinking, you know, I just don't have the math gene because I'm sure not getting it as fast as Sarah or Fred or, or whoever. I must be stupid. And we're not teaching them 
no, that's perfectly normal to not maybe understand something the first time you you tackle it. And in fact, you sometimes need to go back and forth. And if it takes you longer to learn than someone else, well, there's some some evidence that shows that you may learn it more deeply, more creatively. I, I always like to think of it as analogous to um, some people have race car brains. They can get to the finish line really fast. And other people have hiker brains. They get to the finish line, but it's way slower. But on their way to the finish line, they can smell the pine in the air. They can hear the birds. They see the little rabbit trails. In other words, their experience is much richer and deeper. So do they have to work longer and harder than other people you know, with race car brains to get to the finish line? Yes, they do. But they actually uh, can learn it even more deeply. And more to the point, I think it um, is Santiago Ramoni Cajal said something I think is very that is very important, and that is that he was asked how he was successful, and he said, "I'm," he said, "I, I was no genius," and he wasn't because he didn't have a good working memory. And it was really hard for him to to learn um, new things. But he said, I was persistent and I was flexible when the data told me I was wrong. He said, I have worked with many geniuses. And what geniuses can do is they grow up thinking they're always right because they are. They're really smart. And when the questions are easy, it's super easy for them to always just get the answer quickly and, and be smarter than everybody else. But as you grow into adulthood and the, the issues become much, much more complex, really smart individuals can tend to not get all the facts, but simply leap forward to quickly j- jump to conclusions. And then when they're wrong, they're not used to changing their mind. Instead, what they'll do is they'll use their intellect to kind of shore up why they must be right about something. And uh, and so that that flexibility that can come from not finding things perfectly easy to learn can sometimes be invaluable for for real creativity and real learning to take place. Two other important concepts that you discuss in your publications are doing a lot of practice and being persistent. When you learn something new, when you create new chunks of learning in your brain, talk to us uh, about these two concepts. It is really important. And, and I'd like to also point out when you said creating chunks in your mind, so creating chunks or mental representations, sets of links, that is, that is such a important point you're making there. And, and part of the idea behind that that I think is valuable for us to unpack together here is that when when you're trying to learn something, often the, I, the basic idea is really pretty simple. 
And if you can just grab that simple idea and you have it in mind, you can often be way ahead if you if you really have that simple idea in mind. And sometimes we'll look at a book, a textbook, for example, and you're reading a chapter and it, there's so much information and you think, oh my word, how am I going to remember all of this? And it's so complicated. And if you just read that chapter or read a couple pages and then close the book and see what you can remember as the key points, you are already moving way ahead. You're creating those neural chunks. You're creating those mental representations. And those are what are going to be very helpful for you as you're learning, um, in your learning. Another point that you emphasize is that discussing with others what you are learning, chatting about it with others is also hugely important and helpful for effective learning. It is. And I think part of it, it's helpful for a variety of reasons. First, I think that when you, when you're just reading something on a page, uh, it's hard to get into your brain. And you think it's in your brain, but it's actually not in your brain. It's still on the page. But when you're talking to someone else, you actually are helping to embed it in your brain. You're helping to create those sets of neural chunks. And as you're speaking, you're speaking about, well, what is really important here? And so you're starting to go, ah, what are the key uh, chunks, the key sets of neural uh, links that I need to know. And when you're speaking with others, you know, there's something about when you're learning something on your own, you can tend to think you're right about it. It's just the way that the focus mode goes after things. It really just thinks it's it's got it. And that's why it can be so surprising sometimes to work a problem and you turn it in and you and then you get the solution sheet and it's like, oh my word, how could I have been wrong? I knew I got that right. And, and likewise on a test. And so when you're talking with others, it's a great way to, before a test or before homework is turned in, to figure out where you where you have gone wrong because your friends can help debug um those they'll help point something out to you and and it's just easier to 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 accept that oh wait a minute maybe I was wrong on that thing so friends and speaking with your friends uh is is also a great enhancement for your learning it is not all of learning you you do need to spend some time on your own giving those ideas in mind uh, because it, learning is both a social activity and an individual activity. And you want to be, um, be making sure that you are getting those ideas into your own mind as well as uh, building and enhancing them by speaking with others. Before we move on to the next set of questions that focus on online education, future of education, and how new technologies are enabling us to improve teaching and learning, 
Is there anything else uh, about the learning process that, uh, in your view, uh, we should touch upon? Any useful tips uh, to improve learning? Well, I think one of the, the best tricks of all is this idea of using the Pomodoro technique. It is just so valuable. And if you start from Pomodoro technique and then realize that you have to take some breaks because that's part of what helps build your learning, and then, um, and then also realize that don't just sit there doing the easy stuff because it's so much more comfortable and pleasant to do the easy stuff. Um, always be pushing yourself. So kind of push yourself onto the harder things to do. I like to think of it as analogous to working out at the gym. You, when you work at something that's really quite physically strenuous, you are kind of inducing those um, muscles to to grow. And in the same sense, if you really are kind of pushing your brain about what you're learning, you're inducing those little dendritic spines to kind of pop out and 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 connect with one another in a way that um, that you wouldn't if you're not working so hard. One more tip is interleave. So in other words, if you're learning a subject like um like mathematics or like French or really any topic, try not to just do things in the same way. So let's say you're studying Bayes' theorem. So you do a problem on Bayes' theorem, another one on Bayes' theorem, another one, and they're all quite similar to one another. After a while, you think you're really an expert on Bayes' theorem, but then you don't, actually know when to apply Bayes' theorem. When, when do you take this as opposed to another theorem? Uh, and so what you want to be doing when you're learning something, so let's say you're learning about geometric distribution and, uh, and binomial distribution and negative binomial distribution, you don't want to just practice problems on each one of those. You want to, so you don't want to do like 10 problems on geometric. You want to do a problem on geometric, maybe one more so you really got it. Then try and see a problem on binomial. And when did you pick binomial as opposed to geometric? When did you pick negative binomial as opposed to the other two? A lot of times in our learning, we learn how to do something, but not when to do something as opposed to something else. And it's very important to practice those ideas when we are learning. You co-taught one of the world's most popular massive open online course, Learning How to Learn. Uh, it was uh, taken up by 2 million people worldwide. Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. Yep, it's actually been taken by almost two and a half million people so far. So uh, so it's a real shocker to us. We never expected the course to be so popular, but it's really popular. In your view, why this course has been so popular? Uh, is this the fact that uh, it has been online, available worldwide? Or is this uh, the topic which is very interesting, learning how to learn? Or... 
there are other factors. What made this course such a huge success? Oh, I think there absolutely were other elements because there there are other courses on learning out there and they're not nearly as popular. And when you really think about it, there a lot of the approaches used by schools of education to teach about learning, well, first, if you ask them to do a MOOC, a massive open online course on learning how to learn, they'd say, great, we'll do a course for teachers. And then if you said, no, you you need to change your mindset because people in general, not just teachers, are interested in learning, they would have said, oh, you know, we'll give a course and it has two weeks on theories of education, two more weeks on history of education, two more weeks on how babies learn, maybe a little bit at the end on how people really learn, but no neuroscience because that's just really too hard. And we, uh, Terry and I just flipped that completely on its head we started with a foundation of neuroscience and used metaphor to kind of spiral people into ideas that are actually, um, if you tell them in the conventional way, they seem really difficult, but they're actually very simple ideas. And uh, and so in that sense, in that way, we were able to convey a lot of very practically useful ideas about learning in a in a way that people just could find it very understandable and and usable and and I think just the word of mouth alone has really spread the course around the world it's it's been just uh, a delight for us and uh, and I think it's been just a delight for a lot of people because they've gotten a lot of use from it now that we have a number of providers of online courses now that we have a variety of massive open online courses available, there are two emerging views. Some researchers suggest that in few years, uh, brick and mortar universities and colleges will become a thing of the past and on-campus education will end and all education will move online. And there is another view uh, that brick and mortar universities and campus education will always be there and online courses will complement, will further strengthen traditional universities and colleges. Uh, what is your uh, take on these views? Oh, I think it's so easy to get so excited because massive open online courses or MOOCs they they can um bring um bring classrooms to the masses in a much cheaper way than the current way that education is being brought to people um but one must temper this by reality and the reality being that um neither professors nor students are often used to um getting their education in this way so it's something that has um it, it is becoming or has become more popular but at the same time um it, it's it's still filling on a, a kind of a a side niche in in the basics of how um, university educations are mostly given with brick and mortar in institutions. My sense is, in the future, it, it the use of MOOCs will continue to grow. 
um, especially as really high quality or higher quality courses are being put out um, and, and programs. And I, I should point towards, for example, Georgia Tech has a data analytics, a really good master's program for that for less than ten thousand dollars, you can get something. You can get a master's degree that would have cost you forty thousand dollars if you had attended the actual university, and it, so it's like less than a quarter the cost. It's much more convenient that you can do it wherever you are in the world. And what's not to love about that? Um, so I think we're going to be seeing more and more universities that are smart universities, that are visionary universities, creating these kinds of programs, not only at the master's level, but even at the undergraduate level. And when you think about it, um, what's not to like about a student who has been able to put them through a, themselves through a four-year program that they have enough motivation to complete something like that on their own without a teacher, you know, meeting them and prodding them every day to get through these materials face to face. There is something to be said for someone who is um, a self-motivated learner enough to to go through an uh, an online program, a good online program, and there's plenty of interaction with others in a way that you can't actually get face to face because online you're interacting with someone from. Um, Brazil and Pakistan and Israel and I mean all over the place and you're not really as able to do that face to face. So I think that the reality is that online learning will continue to increase in importance even as brick and mortar will also you know always be playing a role. Innovative and emerging technology is enabling delivery of online courses and online education. There is a view that excessive use of technology can lead to a variety of social and emotional issues, can lead to a lack of uh, social skills. Now, some researchers suggest that whenever a new technology arrives, humans adjust accordingly. Cognitive adjustment also happens and we should not worry about this. However, there is a view that uh, we should be mindful of the fact that excessive dependence on technology is not good. How do you see these two competing viewpoints? I think that it is, as people say, that that whenever a technological innovation arises, it, it's kind of easy for us to get so overexcited about the impact of this innovation, whether it's cars or computers or uh, horses or the writing process itself. Even when uh, when cuneiform was first used as a mode of helping um, jot things down, there was a lot of complaint because people were saying, well, look, they're not going to remember as well. 
They're not going to be developing their memories, and memory is a really important thing to be developing. Yeah, well, <laughs> they had a point. Um, so I don't... I do think that it is important to try to help uh, mitigate that addictive nature of many online um, online media and social media. It is it's it's designed to attract your attention and be addictive. And so, the more that people can do things like use the Pomodoro technique that help them to to learn to shut out distractions and work with a focus for a while, I think the more it, it will help them to just uh, do better through the the swell of this current social innovation or technological innovation that has impact on our social behavior. But uh, nothing is... Um, nothing is ground shaking i mean what what could be ground shaking or you know nuclear war and that kind of thing and let us hope that never happens um but uh, but these kinds of social innovations can have somewhat of a minor impact we can mitigate that because we're um we can change our brains and we can decide to uh, use the Pomodoro technique and try to get some periods of more focused attention. And uh, and so I think in that way, uh, society will continue on and, and things will change, but some things will also remain the same. Your work is informed by research in the field of neuroscience. However, our understanding that how brain works is still work in progress. We still don't know a lot about how brain works. Do you think in future an improved understanding of the working of brain and new research findings in the field of neuroscience will help us further improve how we plan and undertake learning? Oh, I, I would just... Oh, wouldn't I love to have a a little camera, uh, a, or something, a telescope that could reach 50 years in the future and see what kind of things they have developed by then? Um, I, I think you know, one thing that is plausible is that we could take some kind of medication, but we don't really know what it is and what its other effects could be that could help uh, return our minds to that that age where um, new connections were being formed more easily, and we could learn a language, for example, without uh, having an accent. And uh, and you know, perhaps there might be ways to to help people to learn in that fashion. Um, Although the side effects, again, you know, who knows what they might be. I think it's just going to be fascinating to learn what they will be learning about learning. Uh, that 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 field is so has so much potential yet ahead. We know so little about how to enhance various aspects of our learning. I think one thing they might do is be able to look at people who are who are able to learn very swiftly and 
perhaps get some ideas from that of, you know, how uh, how others can be helped to learn more swiftly. And I, I don't know. I, I who knows what the the future will bring, but it will be a very very exciting future. I hope for us all. Barb, uh, our discussion is based on science and research. However, my next question seems to be from the realm of science fiction. Do you think one day we will be able to bypass the learning process and we will be able to directly implant knowledge in the brain? Perhaps. I don't see quite how they can do it now. Uh, it's so complex, but um, certainly centuries ago, uh, they would have looked at what we're capable of doing now and said, it's magic. <laughs> so one never quite knows uh, what kind of marble, marvels the uh, scientific geniuses will will present before us. Is there anything that you suggest uh, we should touch upon before uh, we close this discussion? Oh, I just think it's important for people as a whole to try to uh, keep themselves open to learning as much as they possibly can. So, uh, you know, your your family life is vitally important, your friends, but at the same time, everyone knows an older person who is just really, really set in their ways and they're not really interested in anything new and they're kind of curmudgeons, you don't want to be like that person. <laughs> so, so keep yourself open, listening to, to great shows like yours. And, uh, and this is, I think, a, a wonderful way to make sure that you live as healthy and uplifting a life as you can. Dr. Barbara Oakley, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Well, thank you so much, Wesley. And, and I so appreciate you having me on your show. Thank you and goodbye. Bye-bye. <laughs>